0: God bless you, everybody. Wonderful to lift our voices with you to the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk about him some more tonight, as we should. And it's an interesting text before us tonight. I, I, I labeled it Jesus and Fishing, which is an interesting title. And that's because, as you will see in John chapter 21, that's where we'll be tonight, the first 14 Verses that seems, at first glance, to be the major theme of, of these verses, the topic of fishing. Of course, upon closer scrutiny, you and I will see that's not exactly true, but that the Lord was using something very familiar to his recipients, his disciples, many of whom, most of whom were professional fishermen. He was using something, an activity they were well familiar with, in order to teach them something much more important than fishing for fish. It was this. He planned on teaching them the art of fishing for men. And uh, for the duration of my comments, when I say fishing for men, you know that means men and women. We're speaking of humankind. And so he was using uh, something they were well familiar with in order to build upon them and tell them, no, it's not about fish, it's about people. So if we look closely to the text before us tonight, which uh, I hope we will, we will see that a number of principles emerge from the text, which have to do with with fishing for people, in other words, extending the gospel to lost people who are all around us. And so, before we actually dive into the text, let me give you one of the principles, which it seems to me is instructive with reference to this wonderful privilege we have of talking to people about Jesus. And here's the principle. Evangelism can only be done by believers. Now that seems like it's obvious, but maybe it isn't so obvious. There are lots of unbelievers out there who can be contributing members to society. They can do good things, humanitarian activity, be quite generous and philanthropic. But the only ones who could really do evangelism are ones like you and I. Again, that seems to be obvious, but it isn't really. So the prerequisite for effective evangelism is to be evangelized first. And I, I, I want to appeal to you, if you're not certain of your status with the Lord Jesus Christ, though you may be a regular attender even here at church, if you're doubtful about your relationship with him, we would count it a privilege to meet with you privately Because whatever else may be true of you, this is most true. You really can't, in truth, represent uh, the Lord Jesus Christ unless you have accepted him first as your savior. If you think of the Lord Jesus being the accused and we being the witnesses for the defense, our job is to defend him from false accusation. Many people say Jesus is a good man, but that's all. No, no, that's a false accusation. He's far more than that. Some people accuse Jesus, really, of being irrelevant. Oh, no, that's not true. He's very relevant. We have to defend him. Some people accuse Jesus of being one approach to Almighty God amongst many equal approaches. Oh, no. We must tell them he's unique and he's really the only way to be right with God. So our job is to be witnesses for the defense, if you will, And in order to do that, we have to know the one who's coming under accusation. We have to know Jesus personally. So if you've not settled that matter, I wish you would make it a matter of central import even before you leave tonight. Give us the privilege of meeting with you privately to talk to you about him. Here's the second principle about fishing for people. It's this. Evangelism requires knowledge of the facts. Again, if I could use this metaphor, we are witnesses for the defense, We wouldn't have credibility in a court of law if we weren't knowledgeable about the facts of a particular incident we're there to testify about. And so you and I must be very comfortably acquainted with the facts of the gospel message. We must know it so as to be able to communicate it. We must know the facts with regard to why Jesus came here and what he intended to do in coming. Now, there are many passages of scripture that can really, in a concise and clear way, tell us the facts of the gospel. But I found one verse which I think can really help us. It's 1 Peter 3.18. Listen to what it says. For Christ also died. That's part of the gospel message. God in the form of man became man so that he could die. God can't die. God in the form of man died. Christ died for what? Not for nothing. He died for sins. How many times is that necessary? No, no, once for all. What Jesus did paid the penalty for our sins in full so that he could exclaim, it is finished. And then it says the just, that's him. For the unjust, that's us, so that he might bring us to God. Do you know that's the fundamental problem which we humans face? It isn't climate change. Don't buy that. Even if that's an issue, I tell you, it's not the main issue. Here is the main issue. We creatures are separated from the creator. Sin has done that. And we need help in getting back to him. And Jesus is the one who provided that help. He died for our sins. Here's the reason. No, not to make us happy. No, no. Although I I hope we are. And not to make us prosperous, although that's not a bad thing. Not to make us healthy, although that's a good thing to pray for. Not to solve all our problems, though there's no shame in beseeching him for that. No, no, here's why he died, so that he might bring us to God. That's our fundamental problem. We're living in God's world, and then apart from Jesus, we're apart from the maker. And how did he do this? Well, it says here, having been put to death, but in the flesh only, And after that, he was made alive in the spirit. These are all the facts of the gospel. Jesus was crucified, was buried. uh, And this all happened for our sin. But that's not the end of the story. Then he rose up from death. He's ascended to the right hand of the Father where he can intercede for us even now. If you analyze this, just one verse, 1 Peter 3.18, get comfortable with it. Uh, then you will be adept at sharing the facts of the gospel message. I encourage you maybe even to memorize this verse so that uh, on the spot in any situation, you could be ready to defend the accused, the Lord Jesus, and tell people why you believe in him and how they could as well. Well, this crucified and buried Lord Jesus had risen from the dead. And to prove it, he manifested himself on numerous occasions in Jerusalem. We read about this previously. But now the geographic scene changes dramatically. And here we'll see how. Now we're in verse 1 of the last chapter in John's Gospel, chapter 21. After these things, all the things which we have read about in the first 20 chapters of John. After these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples here in a different place. Look at the Sea of Tiberias. And he manifested himself in this way. Uh, You may be a little confused. What is the Sea of Tiberias? I bet you're familiar with it. It's called the Sea of Galilee. The Romans, who occupied the land at this time, changed its name to represent one of their emperors, Tiberius. So the Sea of Galilee was called then by the Romans the Sea of Tiberius. A- a- and this is the locale of Jesus' additional manifestation of himself after dying. It's a famous body of order, this Sea of Galilee. I don't know, maybe it's the most famous in the entire World. In fact, if you count them, uh, probably half at least of the Lord's recorded miracles in the Bible took place either on or around the Sea of Galilee. It was very familiar territory not only to him, but also to the Galilean disciples who followed him. It's only about 13 miles long and maybe about seven miles across at at, at its widest point. We call it the Sea of Galilee, but it's really not a sea. In truth, it's a freshwater lake, but it's called a sea because sometimes, rather suddenly, the weather conditions on this lake could resemble those with great turbulence that you would expect to happen on the open sea. It's called not only the Sea of Tiberias and the Sea of Galilee, it's also in the Old Testament referred to as Kinneret or the Sea of Kinneret, which is a Hebrew word for harp, H-A-R-P, the musical instrument. Now, why would it be called harp, the sea of harp or Kinneret? It's because its shape, if you could see it, from on high, resembles a harp. You take a look at it. You see it's wide at the top, narrows down at the bottom. That's the Sea of Galilee, and early folks noticed this and called it Kinneret. I want to show you some stuff with this great pointer. This is a body of water in which at least half of the Lord's miracles took place. Uh, Right about here is a place called Magdala. That's where Mary Magdalene came from. You know what the Lord did for her? He freed her from at least seven demons. If you go up here to Capernaum, you remember the Lord preached and entered into a synagogue and healed a man there and did many, many things, other things in Capernaum. If you go up here to the north, you have something called the Mount of Beatitudes. And that's where the Lord preached his longest sermon. It's recorded in the Bible. All around, you know what he did on this side of the Sea of Galilee? This was Gentile territory. As a result, they had pigs there. They wouldn't have pigs on this side. It's not a kosher animal. But this is a place of the Decapolis, ten Gentile cities, and so the Lord went there. Very few rabbis would go over here for fear of defilement by the Gentiles. But the Lord Jesus did. He knew. He, you don't get defiled by osmosis. We humans are defiled by our sin nature. He wasn't worried about, being de, about, uh, about Gentiles communicating to him some, some defilement. He wanted to communicate to them holiness. So he went over here and there was a man, you know about it, at Cursey, He was a demon-possessed man, and the Lord commanded the demons. There were like a bunch of them, thousands. He commanded them to enter into pigs, and they rushed into the sea and drowned. This is a very, very familiar place to the Lord Jesus and his disciples, and a very, very biblically important place. Some here who have gone to Israel probably had the wonderful experience of sailing on a ship like this, On the Sea of Galilee, take a look at it. Uh, It's quite a beautiful uh, opportunity to do so. When we go there, we get on a boat like this, but it's a boat owned by a man who was not always a believer in the Lord. He is now. In fact, he owns a couple boats. He's the captain of these boats on the Sea of Galilee. He's Jewish, and he's come to know Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, And it's very interesting and wonderful. You know how he came to know Jesus? By listening to groups like us sing and pray and devote ourselves to the Lord Jesus. And there came a time when he said, I'd like to have their God. I don't want to be religious, but they have found someone I really want to find. So he, over years, came to be aroused by jealousy for what we have. And so now... On the same body of water in which his Messiah actually walked 2,000 years ago, now he leads people in praise to him on that body of water in Israel. Well, a question could be asked why are these disciples now in the north in Galilee? Why did they leave Jerusalem? Well, the answer is this when Mary, you remember, on Easter morning was the first to the tomb, she found it empty. She didn't understand it. She thought someone stole the Lord's body. An angel corrected her there and even said to her this in Matthew 28, verse 7. The angel said to Mary, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him. Behold, I have told you. And that's why they went into Galilee. They went to meet with their risen Savior in Galilee. And it was important for them to go there, and I'll tell you why. You know, they didn't do so hot in Jerusalem. When the Lord Jesus was uh, taken prisoner, uh, uh, mistreated, beaten, scourged, humiliated, made fun of, um, imprisoned, they didn't do too good when the lord jesus was being prepared for public execution of the most humiliating and painful kind crucifixion uh, the male followers the men fled they scattered they were afraid if this happened to him i suppose where next and so that it wasn't their brightest moment and i wonder if they're wondering if we're on the outs now with this jesus we burned our bridges and he's through with us. And, and it's as if the Lord is saying to them, oh, no, no, we'll meet again. There has been trouble in Jerusalem. You, you ran from me when I was taken to be murdered, but, 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 but we'll meet again. I'll meet you in Galilee. You scattered. Uh, you, you didn't rise to the occasion, but I will regather you. In spite of everything, we'll meet again. You know, this is just God's grace which is greater than all our sin, even yours, even mine. His desire is to provide an opportunity in spite of how you've responded to him or me for us to meet again. He always stands ready. Anyway, that's why they went up to Galilee. And who were they? Verse 2. There were together Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus, twin and Nathanael of Cana in Galilee, and the sons of Zebedee, that's James, and John, his brother, John, the very writer of this gospel, and two others of his disciples. We don't know their names. If you count them, there were seven of the disciples, but there were 11 at this time. Judas, you know, had gone his way. Seven from 11 is four. Where are the other four? Well, we don't know. Maybe they weren't fishermen. Not everyone likes to fish, you know, and I don't know. At this point, there's only seven of them. And among them, you can see, is Peter, the denier of the Lord, and Thomas, the doubter of the Lord. I love the truthfulness of Scripture. Uh, 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 I qualify (laughs) to be a fisher of men for the Lord Jesus to the same extent that Thomas and Peter did. If the Lord is waiting for sinless perfection on our part, before we can represent him, by heavens, he has a long way. This suggests to me another principle with regard to fishing for men. It's this. Evangelism is done by flawed yet forgiven people. That's you. That's me. Please don't disqualify yourself. Don't say, I cannot represent the Lord Jesus because of who I am. No, I know that. But you can represent the Lord Jesus because of whose you are. Once he's adopted you, it's your responsibility and privilege to represent him. Be a fisher of men. Well, now verse 3 says, Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. And they said to him, well, we, we will also come with you. And so they went out and they got into the boat. It could have been Peter's boat. He was a professional fisherman. And that night, they caught nothing. Now folks, a typical Galilean fishing boat would look like this. It would be about 15 feet long and can hold a certain number of people. There were many boats in the Lord's day. Fishermen would ply their trade as they do even now on the Sea of Galilee. When we go to Israel, sometimes we have the opportunity of seeing this boat. It's actually called the Jesus boat. Not to insinuate that is the boat in which the Lord road. We don't know that. But it is a boat, just like the one in which he and the disciples were in 2,000 years ago. It was found stuck in the mud along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Two brothers, amateur archaeologists, mostly ordinary people, found it. And now the next task was, how do you get it out of the mud where it had been preserved for 2,000 years without it falling apart Well, uh, they called in all kinds of scientists and experts and came up with all kinds of methodology. And anyway, there it is. You can see it in a museum today right along the shores of the Sea of Galilee. Well, uh, people debate, should Peter and his comrades have gone fishing? The Lord in the prior chapter gave them a great commission. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. And here they are, they're fishing. So some people criticized Peter and the boys for so doing. Uh, I don't know if what they did was wrong. I, I don't know. We could debate this. They were fishermen by trade. Before they met Jesus, that was their vocation. And after meeting Jesus... They could still have a vocation. There's nothing wrong with that. However, something changed. Now, not only do they have the vocation of fishing, but now they have a calling. And the calling must always take precedence over our vocation. Here then is another principle, it seems to me, with regard to fishing for men. Evangelism is our calling. Whatever else may be true of you, One may be a plumber, an electrician, a doctor, a lawyer, a nurse, or even unemployed. Whatever is your vocation or mine, we have to see it as a platform whereby we live true to our calling. We are representatives of the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever platform, vocational platform, we may have chosen. I don't think the Lord Jesus... Cares all that much what vocation you and I choose. He does, but I don't think that's the major issue. He just wants us to be sure that whatever vocation we go into, we see it as an opportunity to represent him well in the workplace. And so Jesus calls some of us away from our secular vocations and into the full-time vocation of Christian ministry. But not everyone... And no one must think, well, representing Jesus is for those professional clergy. Oh no, the privilege of representing Jesus is for all those whom he has redeemed. Whatever else you're doing out there, make sure you see it as a platform to bring glory to his name. Whatever your employment is, you must be the best employer, employee in order to bring glory to the name of the Lord Jesus. And you must look for opportunities to share as opportunities are given to you. Well, these professional fishermen fished all night, and the text says they caught nothing. They fished at night. It's a good time for fishing, but they came up short. So I'm certain they're tired now. They're hungry. They're, they're embarrassed, and they're disappointed, which suggests to me another principle of fishing for men. It's this evangelism can lead to disappointment. That's just the way it is. I mean, to be a fisherman, a person must expect disappointment. Sometimes you cast the nets and all you bring up is nothing but weeds. That's how it is sometimes with our gospel sharing. But I think God wants us simply to be faithful, though we want to be numerically successful. Just be faithful. I was a missionary in Germany Many years ago, amongst American military personnel there, and I met another man who was a missionary from America, and he went to Germany to minister specifically to Turkish people in Germany. They were called Gastarbeiten, or guest workers. They were kind of an underclass in Germany. They went to Germany because the wages were higher and the employment opportunities greater than in their homeland. And this American missionary had ministered to them. Now, I don't remember exactly, but I think he told me something like 13 years. And I asked him in the 13 years, how many of those people did you see come to know the Lord? And he said, I think four or five, maybe six. And I said to him, Oh, I'm so sorry. That's what I said to him. I'm so sorry. He said, No, what do you mean? Nothing to be sorry about. Uh, God called me to be faithful and leave the results to Him. Oh, my goodness, I learned a great lesson. We can't lead anyone to the Lord. It has to be by his power. Ours is to represent him and leave the results to him. I'm reminded of what uh, Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15:58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. My mother lived to be 100 years old. She came to know the Lord at the age of, uh, I think, 67. She was very interested in sharing her faith from that moment on. I thought she was pretty good at it, but she lamented the fact that she didn't think she was because she didn't see much fruit. She said especially amongst her family, children and grandchildren. They didn't seem to respond very much to her testimony about the Lord Jesus Christ, but she prayed and she was faithful and she was uh, a, a sharer of the gospel as opportunities were given to her. And then before she died, soon before she died, I got a call from my oldest sister. She was then 80. She was in a nursing home in Florida. And she said, Stuart, I want to tell you something. I just accepted Jesus as my Savior. 80 years old, nursing home. We rejoiced over it. It was a serious, knowledgeable decision. I called her a day later to see if she would be willing to share this with my mother, who was lying in a nursing home bed. Hearing was quite impaired, but she was still alive. I told my sister, Cynthia, please speak up. I'm putting the phone to mom's ear. Tell her what happened. And she told her, Mom, I've accepted Jesus as my Savior. And that was a woman who kept praying for her daughter would share at every opportunity with no noticeable result. And on her deathbed, my mother got the news, good news that her 80-year-old daughter, who died soon thereafter, had accepted the Folks, ours is to share the gospel. Go fishing, go fishing. Leave the results up to the Lord Jesus Christ. Please remove all pressure from yourself to produce results. Just be faithful. Don't worry about being, in quotes, successful. Well, verse 4, when the day was now breaking, Jesus stood on the beach. Think about this. There he was. Yet the disciples didn't know it was Jesus. How could they not know? Well, I mean, it's, I don't know, dusk, maybe the time of day. And the resurrected Jesus, I'm sure, appeared different than the crucified Jesus. I don't know. They didn't get it. Jesus therefore said to them, verse 5, children, well, it means lads or boys, you you do not have any fish, do you? Now folks, when Jesus asks the question, any time in the Bible, it's not because he doesn't know the answer to the question. It's not that he's seeking information. He's giving the one he questioned an opportunity to hear his own answer. And so the Lord Jesus, he knows the answer. You don't have any fish, do you? He knows they, they came up short. He wants to give them a chance to <laughs> to answer and and they do. And and they say, "No." <laughs> That's all they answer. I don't think they want to talk about this. Would you? This is your profession. You're a professional for crying out loud. Well, 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 your skills didn't didn't produce very much. You fished all night. You you got nothing. I think the Lord maybe arranged this. Why? Well, so that their sense of adequacy would be enhanced. You can't be a fisher of men. You can't be... an active evangelist, and think you could pull it off in your own strength. It cannot be done. Here then is another principle of fishing for men. It's this. Evangelism requires a healthy sense of inadequacy. It shouldn't be paralyzing inadequacy. It should be a healthy sense of inadequacy. It ought to be, oh God, I can't, but you can through me. Please use me to represent you well. Earlier on in John's gospel, you know what he said to his followers? He said, apart from me, you can do nothing. And here he's proving it to him. You can't even bring in fish, though you fish all night. And so you and I need help, assistance in recognizing our inadequacy. Why? So that we could learn to depend on the fully adequate one who could help us to be adequate for the performance of all the tasks he gives us to do. And he said to them, look what happened, verse 6. Cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat. That's so unusual. Apparently, they were casting out on the left-hand side. Folks, there's no magic which side of the boat you cast the nets on. These are professional fishermen. They're probably saying this is counterintuitive. It makes no sense, for crying out loud. But somehow, the mysterious, at this point, stranger on the beach got their attention. He said, no, no. Cast your net on the right side. Well, they did so. I don't know what moved them to. Maybe a voice of his authority. They did. And here's the result. They weren't able to haul it in their nets because of the great number of fish. Folks, it was a miracle is what it was. And I'll bet this miracle reminded them of a previous one that took place at the beginning of the Lord's time with them about three years prior. In fact, we can read about it. In Luke 5, they're on the same body of water in the same area. And the Lord Jesus said to them, now he's in a boat with them, not on the shore at this time. He said, go out, put out to the deeper water. Let down your nets there. Peter, naturally, he's always speaking up. Peter said, "But, but the Lord, we fished all night. We didn't catch anything. Somehow, however, Peter was moved to get beyond his own head and reason and They put down the nets, and you know what happened. The catch was so much, that the nets began to break, and the boat almost sank. And then the Lord said to them, you can read about it in Luke, the Lord said, don't fear. From now on, you will be catching men. And they realized their life wasn't about their vocation, it had nothing to do with fish, it had to do with people and so now three years later in the same spot another miraculous catch of fish as if the Lord is reminding them do you remember what your calling is it's not to catch fish it's to catch people and I bet all this is coming to them and now this reminds me of another principle of fishing for people it's this evangelism is partnering with God it's very very interesting I'll tell you what I mean You know what the Lord Jesus could have done to those fish? He could have said, fish, get in the boat. (laughs) But he didn't. He said, fishermen, cast your nets on the right-hand side. Why? The power in evangelism is always the Lord's, but the means of evangelism are God's people. Why? Does he use us? Because he loves us, and he wants us to invest in something that matters. And so if ever you want to be in partnership with God, in sync with God, then be an evangelist. Go out there and ask God to give you a sphere of influence in the lives of unsaved people. and That will usher you into partnership with God. I think more than anything else, evangelism is partnering with God. Well, that disciple, verse 7, therefore, whom Jesus loved... You remember that's John, the very author of this text. The disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. You see, when all this happened, John, quite intuitive and insightful, recognized, It's the Lord. Remember? He's the one who gave us the miraculous catch of fish three years ago. He said this to Peter. And so when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, look what he did. He put his outer garment on, he wasn't naked. But he was at work, so he was maybe, I don't know, wearing kind of a wraparound short outfit. But he was going to pay respects to the Lord. And so he put on his outer garment because he was stripped for work. Look what he did. He threw himself (laughs) into the sea. There goes Peter leaving John and the others to bring in this haul of fish. They're about 100 yards out. they got a road by themselves. Impulsive Peter, zealous yet impulsive, jumps into the water. He's swimming. He's not waiting for the paddling. He's swimming to shore to embrace this Lord Jesus. I love this text because it reminds me that the Lord's disciples are very different temperamentally and in terms of personality, which tells me there's room in the body of Christ for all of us. We don't have to be like the one you're sitting next to. Be who God made you to be. So here's the principle I think we can gain from this. Evangelism accommodates distinct temperaments. John had quick insight. Peter took quick action. They're temperamentally entirely different, and yet they complement one another, and they both qualify to be fishes of men, though they be different from one another. So too with us. Do you know we're not required to do evangelism the same way? For some people, they can stand out on our street corner and proclaim Jesus as Lord with great boldness, no matter what response they get. Some people are given to knock on doors, give out gospel tracts, or do any manner of overt forms of evangelism. Others may feel left out because that's just not your inclination. It's not your makeup. You're someone who maybe uh, is very good at developing relationships with unsaved people and giving them a chance to see your life in Christ. And then when they ask you... uh, Uh, to speak about the hope that is in you oh you're more than willing to share with them some of us are are prone to put a gospel tract in someone's hand or share the gospel or make a conversation and others want to serve people first winning the opportunity to talk to them about the Lord Jesus it doesn't matter Be your own fisher of men. We cannot legislate the form or manner of evangelism. Don't put yourself down because someone else is approaching the fishing task differently than you. So did John and Peter. There's room in this wonderful calling for all of us. But the other disciples, verse 8, they came in the little boat. They finally got to shore. For they were not far from the land, about 100 yards away dragging the net full of fish. Kind of a miracle the net didn't break, though it was full. And so when they got out upon the land, they saw a charcoal fire already laid. The last time Peter saw a charcoal fire was in the temple precincts when he denied the Lord Jesus. Wow, I wonder if this charcoal fire brought back that memory. And they saw that there were fish placed on it and and bread. Think about it. They get to shore After a night of dismal fishing, they're tired, they're hungry, and the Lord had prepared, I'm sure, a wonderful breakfast for them. And Jesus said to them in verse 10, look what he said, bring some of the fish which you have now caught. Again, in keeping with the metaphor of fishing for men, I wonder if the Lord is suggesting to us this principle. Evangelism is about bringing our fish. (laughs) It's about bringing people to Jesus. What do I mean? I don't think our calling is to bring people to a particular political party that we may attach ourselves to. I don't think our calling is to bring people to agreement with all of our values, morals and ethics. I don't even think the our calling is to bring people to a particular denomination. No, no. I think our calling is to bring people to Jesus. And then when he gets a hold of them, when people get the mind of Christ, everything changes. And so we have to be careful because I fear we as Christians are getting distracted by what the world is throwing at us and we're arguing with people about the nature of marriage, the right to life, climate change, women's roles in the church and all that kind of stuff. Not one of those issues will save anybody. I didn't say they're unimportant. I just said they're premature until someone is regenerated. Why don't you bring your fish to the Lord Jesus and let them change them just as he changed you? I would be a liberal Jewish guy from New York, uh, but for regeneration. I have different views now on the sanctity of human life, on, on biblical marriage, on all of these things. Not because someone first persuaded me of those issues as a prerequisite for being right with God. No, but someone simply brought me to Jesus and they let him in me do the work of renovation. Be careful that you're not blowing your testimony because you're dealing with a circumstantial issue with an unsaved person who doesn't know what you're talking about. Bring your fish to Jesus. That's what they did. And Simon Peter, verse 11, went up. He drew the net to the land. Now this, tell me, Simon was a strong guy. You got 153 fish you'll see in a second. They weigh about two pounds a apiece. It's very tough to pull this. The nets don't break. And so he must have been a strong guy. Anyway, he did this. It was full of large fish. Look, the number is recorded. 153. And although there were so many fish, the net was not torn. Very interesting. Do you know people have suggested all kinds of fanciful explanations for why there was 153 fish? Someone said, well, 153 is the numerical value of the two words Simon and fish. In Greek, each letter has a numerical value. They say if you add the numerical value of Simon, that's Peter's name, to the word fish, that's ichthus, you get 153, which proves that Peter is the, first, uh, uh, is the premier apostle and first pope. I'm not lying to you. That's one theory. Here's another one. They, someone said, no, 153 is a reference to the Trinity. Why? Because 153 is three times 50 plus three. Three persons of the Trinity. Now, I bring this to your attention. And it is laughable for this reason. Please be careful about this stuff. Be careful of those who are always finding hidden meanings in the numbers of the Bible or in other things in the Bible. I'm very cautious about a book writer, preacher, or teacher whose sermon series is uh, frequently inclusive of the word, the hidden secrets of the this, the this, the that. You know, the whole of the Bible proves to me God is not a God who keeps secrets. Our Father is a God who wants us to know stuff. It's a book of Revelation. All sixty-six books are a book of Revelation. Please be careful about these secret meetings. It really, it really sells books, but it's a very poor method of biblical interpretation. We ought to give uh, the text of Scripture its plain, ordinary meaning until God proves otherwise. Now, I don't know why God chose to uh, record through John that there were 153 fish. I choose to believe it's to prove to us that it was such a large catch of fish, the fishermen counted each one. And why did they? Because in those days, they would divide the fish amongst the whole crew. 153, at the least, tells us it was literal fish, and there was a lot of them. And I don't think... Good biblical interpretation allows us to go further than that at this point. When we meet the Lord Jesus, I think he's going to open our eyes to all kinds of things. But for now, please don't give yourself to all this fanciful stuff. People are always writing Bible code books and this and that. Come on, be fascinated that these professional fishermen couldn't do a thing until the Lord Jesus pronounced the fullness of their nets, it was so full that there were 153. It's not a metaphor. It's not an illusion. They counted each one. One, one two, three. That's a lot of fish. Isn't that exciting enough for, cried out loud, don't, it's called an allegorical method of interpretation. People like Madonna are into it and all kinds of people who are far out there. Instead of seeing the plain, powerful, life-changing meaning of scripture, you read it, all kinds of things into this letter and that letter. I'm on the verge of naming certain names, but I don't want to because that's happening today and people are coming under fire for naming names. I don't, I don't want to do that right now except to tell you, please be careful of all these fanciful explanations. Verse 12, Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast you see to me that's quite exciting i don't have to speculate over why it says 153 fish and not 152 i really want to chew on this come and have breakfast jesus gives many invitations now he's inviting disciples who weren't very faithful to him one was a doubter one was a denier come and have breakfast have breakfast with jesus when you dine with someone, it's a sign of intimacy and friendship. That's what he's extending to them. And at this point, none of the disciples ventured to question him. Who are you? When they knew it was the Lord. Jesus provided on the shore of the Sea of Galilee breakfast for these. And What we have here, folks, is more dramatic evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Think about it. You have very practical, very concrete, very black and white very down-to-earth fishermen in broad daylight who saw and even ate with the risen Lord. There's evidence for his resurrection. Well, here's what happened. Jesus came and he took the bread and he gave them and fish likewise. Jesus, after his resurrection, is eating with his disciples. And he invites all those whom he has redeemed into intimate and friendly fellowship with him. So what principle can we derive from all this? I think it's this. Evangelism is the byproduct of time with Jesus. Your purpose is not to do evangelism. Your purpose is to have breakfast with Jesus. I call it the with him principle. One time the Lord spent all night praying about his selection of these disciples The text says he appointed 12 that they might be with him in order that he might send them out to preach. No, no, preaching wasn't the calling. They were called to be with him. And the byproduct of being with him is that they'd have a message about him to preach to others. We run on empty, you and I, often spiritually in seeking to serve the Lord Jesus. I think we ought to let him serve us first. He wants to, let me serve you, let me nourish you. I have food for you. And then in the overflow, there'll be fruit. Just let your fruit be born in the midst of unsaved people. And so that's what happened here. And then in the last verse for tonight, it says, this uh, is uh, now the third time that Jesus was manifested to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. So we ought to be very clear about what John, the writer, has taken pains in his gospel to make very clear to us. It's this. The risen Christ is not a vision. He's not a hallucination. He's not a ghost. The once crucified, dead, and buried Jesus is very much alive from the dead. And because of what Jesus did, he rose up from death. We can believe in what Jesus said. Here's one thing he said. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. What's more, he does not come into judgment but has passed out of death into life. Because of what Jesus did. We can believe in what Jesus said. and Because of what Jesus said, a grand opportunity to live free and forgiven. It is our mission. It is our mission to cast our nets with the bait of the gospel and leave the results up to God. So my fellow fishers of men and women, may God grant you and I nets filled with redeemed people who we can then bring to Jesus for his glory. It's our grand purpose in the time remaining here. And so, Lord Jesus, we bow before you, first thanking you for saving us and then giving us something to do. It's something that defines our life, that gives it purpose, meaning, and intentionality. You've given us other things to do. Thank you, for we need to be sustained monetarily, vocationally. And yet all of it is a means to the end of being fishers of men. Thank you for the privilege, the partnership, the empowerment to do so. There are fish out there you're ready to command into our nets. It's our job to go find them by sharing the gospel. I pray, O oh God, you would give us a familiarity with the facts of the gospel, and permission to share in accordance with our personality and temperament, which is also from you. And I pray, O God, you would get more fruit from we who have redeemed and entrusted the gospel message to. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.